Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week our guest and his book make quite the splash. After various delays and postponements, Tim McGregor is finally here on Talking Scared. Tim's the author of historical horror novel Hearts Strange and Dreadful, which long-term listeners may remember was one of the books picked by Sadie Hartman, no less, in last year's State of the Horror Nation. Now, Tim is back with Lure, a mermaid horror novella that injects a real mean streak into the legend. This is not Ariel. Sebastian the Crab is nowhere to be seen. We start, a little surprisingly, by discussing our favourite kids' cartoons before heading into much darker waters. We talk about the creative impacts of Tim's wild Ontarian childhood and his father's axe. We disagree over whether his protagonist in Lure is a hero or a villain, and we trace the weird, complex history of sexualised, fish-tailed women. Tim also opens the lid a little on a recent controversy in the horror world, a balls-up of such magnitude that it sank an entire publisher pretty much overnight. It's good to get the inside track on such a regrettable set of circumstances. But first, Scary Mermaids. Come with me to a bleak spit of land on the edge of an unforgiving ocean. Dip a toe, but expect it to be bitten off. Let's talk scared. Well, hello, Tim. The warmest of welcomes to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm good, Neil. I'm good. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, on the show. Um, I'm a, kind of a fan of the show, so I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, you, you were one of the very, very first kind of big-name authors to pick up this show and, and really promote it, and, and it's helped me out a lot. So I'm I'm very grateful both for that and to to have you on the show at last. Awesome. Yeah, um, you, you're, the conversations you have with authors, I, I always find really insightful. I always come away with something new or something interesting. Because um, you clearly do a very deep read of the books that you feature. Um, and the, I don't know, the conversations are always always enjoyable so kudos man well thank you that's really nice to hear i think my wife would like me to do a little bit less of a deep read and a little bit more actual earning work maybe but um <laughs> yeah i do feel guilty on occasion anyway but this conversation has been a long time coming because yeah. we originally arranged for this to happen quite a few months ago about an entirely different book was in the ice cream but then life and publishing and social media intervened. And we'll get to all that anyway, if you don't mind. Okay, sure. Um, so this may end up being a longer conversation than most. I'm warning you and warning the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But that delay has been a good thing in one way at least, because it, it means we can extend the conversation to cover Lure, which is your new novella from, is it Tenebrous Press? Is that how I pronounce it? That's how I pronounce it. I've heard... I heard somebody pronounce it differently, but I'm I'm sticking with Tenebris because my brain can only handle so much. So yeah, it seems the obvious way to say. It. And I'd like to say hello to Alex, by the way, as well, who is another big supporter of the show and and you know in charge of publicity and all that over there. She she's great. She's a, she's she's amazing. Uh, she's a, she's an awesome person to work with, and also just a, a great collaborator. So yeah, yeah. I've had this wonderful idea for a short story I'm trying to put together on, on the fly to get it into her Monstrous Futures anthology. I'm desperate to get it to her because I've, yeah, I really want it to happen, right. but it's what it is. Good for you. Go for it. But forget me, Lore. It's out, I believe, on the 18th of July. Um, That's right. 
so a few week a few weeks after this episode will go live. I didn't have the exact dates when we scheduled this, right. um, but yeah, people can listen to this and read the book or vice versa, whatever you want. I described Law <laughs> on Twitter just yesterday as how to train your dragon meet <laughs> children of the corn as directed by Robert Eggers. Now, how do you feel about that? F- feel free somewhere to piss off. No, I, I, I got a good laugh out of it. Um, I have to admit, I've never seen um, How to Train Your Dragon. I know <laughs> what it is. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting pairing with Children of the Corn because I love Children of the Corn. I haven't seen it in ages, but you know anything with creepy children, I'm down for. So your description was just crazy enough to, to really uh, tickle my funny bone. So yeah. Yeah. I will say there aren't many scary kids in this story. It's more about the wholesale slaughter that occurs at one point. But yeah, that's what made me think about it. Um, But you have to watch How to Train Your Dragon, man. It's my favorite cartoon apart from Monsters, Inc. I just think it's it's, it's the wonderful thing. Really? Well, I'll I'll check it out. But is it better than The Iron Giant? Because that's that's my favorite animated feature. Oh, you know what? You've thrown a spanner in the works there because... (laughs) I almost don't think of that as animation because I think of animation as kind of like a jokey slight trick. I've got a really really trivial notion of animation. I haven't caught up with the sort of Studio Ghibli thing. Um, I've got a really childish idea, and the Iron Giant almost overachieves. It's almost too good. Right. No, I, I agree. Yeah, and I didn't... Uh, this conversation, I didn't think it would go on an animation route. <laughs> yeah, so th- that was my contrived comparison. Uh, Train Your Dragon, Children of the Corn, Robert Eggers. I think it's at this point we best go over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about lore to start this conversation off right? Yeah, sure. Uh, if I was smarter, I would have had something snappy prepared, huh. but I don't. Um, lore is set in, a, set in a somewhat fantastical setting. It's very much like our world, but it's a little off. Uh, it's a remote seaside village where the uh, environment is very harsh. The people who live there are very closed-minded, very kind of rigid in their thinking and a mermaid pops out of nowhere in the bay and uh, the fishermen all react in a typical way they try to catch it uh, and the mermaid ends up turning the entire uh, community on its head in in a really hopefully horrific and certainly a very salty nautical way so i hope that's vague enough without giving away too much but yeah it's 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 about a killer mermaid how's that well, that's great because I was really worried you were going to bury the lead and, and not admit it was a mermaid, which would have been a problem for this conversation. Um, yeah. Good, so that's not a spoiler. So mermaids have been somewhat in vogue in recent fiction. Quite a lot of Neil Gaiman-esque whimsical fantasy mermaids at the moment. Um, sure. But in horror as well, you know, you've got things like Mira Grant's Into the Drowning Deep, which I haven't read and I believe is a key text. Um I had Angela Slatter on the show to discuss her particular strain of mermaid in All the Murmuring Bones. So what moved you to to kind of write your own take on the figure? And and how did you aim, if you aimed, to differentiate your vision? Um, Really, I've had the idea for a while, but I just never really had a story to hang it on. Just the idea of the mermaid as a monster. Uh, Just because in our, you know, in our current, in popular culture, the mermaid is this benign magical creature but also a lot like a princess um we have two girls and when they were little they went through this uh princess phase and all of their friends went through this princess phase as well so like the mermaid and the princess 
were kind of the same thing. Um, but years ago, I'd seen this crazy low-budget movie about it. was called She Creature. It was about a killer mermaid. It was well done for what for what it was. Uh, and I just thought that was a, such a cool idea to turn such a benign, uh, cute little creature in our in popular culture and make it a monster. Uh, and it eventually just found a way into a story that involves you know, a very sort of rigid religious society in a way to comment on uh, our own culture, uh, how how toxic and how misogynistic our, the culture that we live in is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it just came out very quickly. Like the idea was there and I just, I just kind of blew it all out within a, about a month. Um, and I had a blast writing this. I, I don't know what it was, I guess something about, just the dichotomy of a mermaid being a monster and blah, blah, blah. Um, I had an absolute rip roaring time writing this thing. Um, in fact, I had to put it away cause I kept tinkering with it. It was like, if you tinker <laughs> with it too much, you're going to screw it up. Just leave it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, I had a blast writing it and I can't wait. Uh, it's finally coming out. Um, and I'm really happy with the press that it's coming out with. So, was it was it planned as a novella? Because it's it's a fairly substantial novella, you know. Novellas are movable feast. It, it's quite a substantial yeah. one. There's a lot of story in this. But was it planned that way? It you know it it was, and I think it was the fact that it, that it, I had decided it should be a novella, which is why I kind of broke the story for me. Um, this is the first novella I've written. Uh, everything else has been novels. I've, I've self published quite a bit of stuff, so I've written a lot of novels. And I saw the, I was reading a lot of novellas and saying, I, you know, I want to give this a shot. And there was something really freeing about just doing a novella, like all the usual story structure stuff that I think about, I threw away and I just kind of went, I'm just going to go for it and follow my guts. Uh, So the decision to write a novella was kind of the perfect way to crack open this crazy mermaid story that I'd, Mm -hmm. I'd always been kind of brewing in the back of my head. Uh, Because there was kind of no rules. Uh, Not that there's rules to storytelling, but the storytelling that I usually use for novels is kind of a three-act structure and all this other blah, blah, blah that um, I normally use. And I I had so much fun because I chucked it all away. And so I'm just going to go wherever this thing leads me. Um, So yeah, the the two were tied together. The decision to do a novella really kind of cracked open this crazy story that I'd wanted to tell. So. Well, well, for a novella, there's, there's quite a lot to talk about. Let, let, let's start with the setting, because more than in a lot of fiction, it is crucial in this story, I think. Um, right. It struck me that, I mean, you've described it quite well. You know, it's this sort of semi-fantastical shoreline village, very grim place. Um, but it struck me that the very first image we see, the very first sentence of the book, is a, a kind of relic of a sea monster in the village church. And you describe it hanging, quote, a good three fathoms above the floor. And I immediately thought, fathoms, not feet or meters. That's interesting because it's absolutely clear this is a wholly sort of sea-focused setting right. and culture. Um, are you a seafaring man yourself? What's your relationship with the ocean? <laughs> uh, I'm not a seafaring person. Uh, I grew up on a lake, uh, but I'm not... Uh, I barely fish. I always thought fishing was boring. Uh, but, you know, this the sea and sort of sea life does have a certain romanticism to it, uh, especially for a land lover like myself. Um, so that had its own appeal. Um, and it, 
it's not that it's a gothic setting, but it kind of feels a bit creaky and gothic in a way, especially, you know, the church and stuff. Mm-hmm. Originally, this was historical. I'd set it about like 13 something or other. Uh, and then working with the press, we had this idea that it might work better if it was uh, not tied to a specific place, but a bit more fantastical. But it's recognizable enough as our world. Uh, so, again, that was also a freeing aspect to it because I could kind of make anything um, happen. But not I didn't want to go too crazy. I don't, I don't want to distract from the story with uh, with crazy setting. I didn't want to spend too much time world building. So I wanted it recognizable enough so that I, it's clearly like our world, maybe set a couple hundred years ago. Um, but it's not our world. It's it's someplace different, someplace other. So so we, we, we've talked now, you know, we've, we've mentioned setting. One of the, before we get into any further into the book, I wanted to ask, I've read your, um, your quite creative bio that's on your website. Oh. Um, <laughs> where you, you talk about growing up in the isolated, hint, hint, I can't say that word, Forgive me, that's, this is my H's coming through, my Lancashire H's. Uh, growing up in the isolated hinterlands of northern Ontario. That is a troublesome sentence for someone with my accent. Um, Sorry about that. Does that, do you think, figure into your work? Growing up in that... Because, I mean, that, that sentence that you've written is is accompanied with a, a still from Kubrick's The Shining. So <laughs> I, I, I get the sense that your, your gothic inclinations, perhaps are in some way married to or born from your your youth in the middle yeah. of fucking nowhere. <laughs> yeah, for for sure it it's uh it informed it a lot. I mean the the winters there were very bleak. We uh uh we had no close by neighbors. It was it was um way out in the boonies. Beautiful place in the summertime. We owned a tourist camp so there was always people there coming every year. Um great place to hang out because the same people tend to come back. So you had these weird summertime friends who would come visit for like two weeks at a time. But in the winter, it got pretty damn bleak and you really had to make your own fun or you'd go crazy. And sometimes you would go crazy. Like cabin fever would honestly set in at at certain times because we would get like three or four feet of snow, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it can be kind of bleak. Was it an eerie, spooky place to be? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I had one experience that uh, I'm pretty sure these were wolves I heard. It was a fairly mild March night, but there's still tons of snow. And, it was, and so, But sometimes around March, the sky would clear, this, the moon would come out, and it would light everything up blue because there's so much snow, <coughs> which in itself creates a really cool effect. Uh, but then hearing wolves in the distance was like one of those moments that just kind of like changed me maybe or or – uh, it was totally my jam. Like it was creepy because I'm thinking they're actually out there. Uh, but that particular moment was kind of like, maybe that sealed me for horror forever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, for, for sure your environment, like no matter what your environment, uh, it's going to inform the kind of stories you tell just the way that it informs the kind of person you end up being. That that was a little segue just because I had an idea of you sitting up there like, like Danny Torrance becoming... <laughs> A macabre person you know it, 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 just to clarify it was more like the old man would get bored and he'd be in the garage sharpening his axe and you're kind of like oh <laughs> right okay yeah <laughs> just don't obey your father um yeah i mean i'd be more concerned as a purist if he took up croquet and was walking around with a rope mallet that would bother me more right um a minute ago you before i took us on that weird segue you mentioned that you didn't want to do too much world building 
And I know what you mean by that. This is back to law now. I know what you mean by that because you do kind of just give us this scenario. All we need to know is that, you know, the sea is there. It's pretty bleak. There are these mountains you can't go into behind you. So these people are trapped, right? In terms of locale, that's all you need to know. But what I loved was you dropped these breadcrumbs of alternative religion and folklore throughout the story. So to list a few, there's these repeated mentions of a one true God. There's a, a folk hero called Torgrim. There's even reference to the, the God sort of Nomos, who to my understanding is Greek rather than Norse, but it, it you know, it's all adding to that disorienting yeah. mythology. But you also include this whole library of texts, such as the Proverbs of Carcosa, which I'm assuming is a reference to Ambrose Bierce and Robert Chambers, you know, the King in Yellow and all that. So I know you don't want to do world building, but you definitely did law building. Um, right. What's the importance of all that stuff in this novella? Um, well, really like I didn't, you know, usually one of the hallmarks of fantasy is, is sort of intense world building. Uh, and I didn't want to do that. So this was more a way to like, like you said, breadcrumbs doled out judiciously that would kind of remind you that this is, isn't quite our, this is a, a different world. Uh, and it, I, it was just kind of fun inventing little bits of this religion and these sacred texts uh, that they have. There's, there's one, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it has kind of a preposterous name, like the book of sorrows and yeah. miseries or something like that. Very, you know, that's very Catholic, which is how I was raised. But uh, I, you know, without going into great detail about any of these things, I just wanted to give little hints, just to kind of ground it, but also um, suggest that this is a very strange, different world. Um, that, but it's it's close enough to our own, especially with the one true God. That's is clearly meant to the religion that they have is clearly meant to reflect Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, but be a little strange, a little a little different, and uh, you know. It was just kind of fun to make up that shit and throw in little teasers like Carcosa. It's it's a little word, but it's you know to the right reader it might mean a lot of different things. So it's a proper Easter egg, that isn't it? And it's you know it's appealing to, to the initiated. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, do you have any plans to kind of flesh out a mythology? Are you are you going kind of McGregor mythos? Um, not really. It, this was just kind of one thing to do with this book. Like, I, I don't think I'd ever go back to this world as much fun as it might be. Um, no, it's just like the, it was just an individual thing. And, uh, it's kind of fun just to stir a pot and pick out cool little baubles to create your world. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I asked that because it, it's quite hard to read a story about a grim old seaside village under assault from sea dwelling monsters and not think of Lovecraft. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Was that in the back of this in any way? What is is that an influence in any way? Because it feels like it. Um, only in the back of my head. I wasn't conscious, for, uh, of course, but I've always loved some of Lovecraft stories, the ones that are set on the sea with these squishy, weird fish people and stuff. Uh, I, I've always kind of enjoyed those, and I certainly like... Uh, the fact that he created this this mythos that a bunch of other people got to play with as well, and it became this like it became almost its own genre. Um, discussions of the writer aside, uh, for one thing, because I, I know I've heard you mention your dislike of uh, of Lovecraft mm-hmm. with 
with good cause. He, he had some terrible views. Um, but I do find it interesting that like he's he's his own adverb or adjective. Yeah, Lovecraftian. Even people who've never read it or don't even understand, really know what it is, kind of know what it means. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think you know shades of of Lovecraft and Cthulhu clearly inform this because I read it a long time ago and it just kind of uh, it's part of my core maybe or mm-hmm. so it wasn't conscious but it's it's never far from the surface I think well it, it is interesting and it's a bit ironic that despite the fact that I continually bring up Lovecraft <laughs> to criticize him I I keep mentioning you know yeah you know, the fact that I told him in almost probably one in three episodes right. and I don't like that his writing it, it shows the reach it has it's even penetrated into to my antagonistic headspace you know you can't read a book as i say about things coming from the sea and, and not think about him yeah i agree but i do think he would have spun in his grave at your take on 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 mermaids yeah. and things coming from the sea because it's a yeah, t- it's a touch more progressive <laughs> yeah there are a few little moments in this novella where you do allude in my eyes to a potentially cosmic scale to this story um i don't know if you if you'll go with me on this but casper our protagonist yeah problematic protagonist his father is the reverend um and casper says to his father if the mermaid exists then what does that say about the almighty does he allow this creature to exist or is it beyond and later he asks whether the mermaid comes from a time before god and there's a kind of hints of kind of cosmology there i suppose and and i did sure. think it was interesting that you picked his father to be the reverend because it highlights the conflict between you know the established religious order and everything that the the mermaid or the lure maid as you term her represents yeah yeah i mean it's it's very deliberate uh and it kind of works uh narratively to have those to have him being the son of the of the reverend uh and the <clears throat> the dominant religion kind of gets it's shown to be pretty much useless because the uh, twice the the villagers kind of storm the church and demand uh help or answers from the reverend and all he can see, he can do is say you know thoughts and prayers um and uh, there's also just my own little bugaboos uh and i've i've done this in a number of stories whenever the supernatural presents itself uh I always think it's it's going to do one of two things. It would either prove the existence of God, because if there's this supernatural thing and it's real, then that means God would God must be real as well. Or the it's a, the exact opposite: the existence of this, you know, vampire, werewolf, whatever, completely disproves the existence of God, because God would not allow that thing to exist. Um, and I've played it both ways in my previous fiction. Um, a lot of that is. The writing of a recovering Catholic, because um, <laughs> those weird kind of obsessions and moody Catholic morbidity is just part of who I am. So I'm always like kind of poking at at those those questions of the existence of God or uh, seeing the dominant religion <clears throat> shown to be the useless house of cards that it is. So. It's interesting, you know, how often I speak to authors who come from either kind of shucked off Catholic background or right. who who have, in their own words, escaped the Mormon church. Uh, 
No, I, I'm not. I'm, I, don't at me, listeners. I'm not getting into religion. I'm just saying it, it's it's fascinating to me that those two religions seem to really foster an interest in horror, almost in opposition to them. Yeah, that's true. Because well, the um, if, if you look at like the Anglican Anglican Church, there's not they're not really heavy on the the symbology or the strange little rituals as much as like say the catholic church i can't speak to the mormon thing because mm. i don't really know much about it like in that case maybe it's the rigidity of like they have because they have a lot of rules they have a like it's very sort of tribal like keep the outsiders out um and in some cases like keep all the children in so we can get our hands on them <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know i don't know uh, like catholicism is really kind of a morbid gothic thing like if you're raised looking up that, that that gruesome image of uh an emaciated man nailed to a tree your thoughts are probably going to tend towards the dark side a little more but a little bit yeah i always think catholicism is a is a is a frightening religion because the best you can do is break even you know what i mean yeah. the, 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 <laughs> the default sure. the default is you're going to hell um yeah. unless you up your game so the best you can do is break even. The reward is that you don't suffer. And I think that is a terrifying thing to kind of put onto a child. It totally. It's, it's like walking to a casino. You know, the whole thing is rigged in favor of the house. So you yeah. can't stand a chance. Yeah. Whereas Anglicans, like, you know, Church of England, I I mean, I wasn't brought up CV, but I, I was a scout. So I had to go to Harvest Festival and that sort of stuff. Okay. And and that's not frightening because all that is, is they've they've taken the gospels and reduce it to mumbling in cold buildings. Um, so there's n- n- nothing, nothing, nothing to really fear there apart from the, the ability to empty out things of all joy. Um, but anyway, yeah. we digress. I probably picked up a third of my audience. Um, so we talked about, right. This thing about the, the mermaid being something that upsets the natural order of things. Right. Right. I know I've already mentioned some key mermaid horror texts right at the start of this, right? But to cap- cast a net a little wider, no pun intended, <laughs> just realised. Uh, nice. I, I, I think lore sits, for me, in this wider tradition of kind of an aquatic monster fiction. It isn't always horror. Um, I'm thinking of things like Sarah Perry's The Essex Serpent um, right. and a book the called Lauren Groff's The Monsters of Templeton, which, by the way, is one of my favourite books that I've yet to mention on this show. And in both of those books and others, an aquatic monster kind of recle- reflects something about the community on the other side of the beach, right? right. They're not necessarily a metaphor, but a reflection or a, a revelation of something. That's what they do. Um, would you agree? Is your lure maid just a monster, or does she represent something? Which is a very loaded question. Sure. Uh, no, she she's much more than a monster. I, I would argue that she's not even, um, possibly not even a monster. I like the idea of her being some kind of god in her own right. Um, and gods are always they can be sort of whimsical or arbitrary in their fury. But in this case, she's simply punishing these villagers who, who try to hurt, harm her. Um, and, but she does it in the, in the most skillful way, not just by killing them, but ending up turning their own against against them. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Even that's one point turning their food source against them. And a lot of the story involves not so much the mermaid, but it's the reaction of the people to the crisis they're in, to the reaction to the mermaid. This thing is here. It won't let us fish. Uh, what do we do? And the worst kind of comes out in them. And, you know, the, as far as like symbolic creatures, like a mermaid kind of loaded already, right? Like it, it's confused with the siren, uh, the temptress, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, like there's, there's a lot kind of going on. And I, I feel like I'm only kind of uh, touching on a, utilizing a, f- a bit of it for this novel. There's probably so much you can do with a, a mermaid as, as an antagonist or even a protagonist. I don't know. Well, I'm just realizing now that I don't know much about her. That hadn't occurred to me. But like you say, she could be a god. She could be anything. You don't really map out the parameters of what she is. She she just she just is. That's right. Do you have more information on her than there is on the page? Well, that's what I'm saving up for the sequel, Neil. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not. Uh, I, I I don't really. I, I wanted to keep her keep her mysterious. Um, but I don't have a backstory for her. I don't have a secret underwater kingdom. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I like to think of her as being sort of this free autonomous thing that kind of rules the waves. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't picture her as being like the queen of Atlantis or anything like that. So. <laughs> okay. Not going full on rice. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I. It's interesting you mentioned the sirens because that's what I was thinking about. Because you, you, we haven't explained. you, you the, the villagers call her a lure maid um and that i should say obviously ties into sirens who would you know lure sailors to their death in greek myth and stuff like that and um it's very interesting that in this book you subvert the target of the allure so to speak because rather than luring the men sexually the lure maid instead has an impact on the women of the village i'm not going to spoil anything you know Perhaps with sure. a promise of better life or or perhaps even freedom, because this is a very unpleasant place to be female. Um, that felt to me like an absolute core element of the book, who was being lured. Yeah, and again, it, it's, it speaks to this, this creature's nature to kind of subvert things in an entire way. The, you know, the fishermen, when she first shows up, they see her just as kind of a, a catch, their their impulse is just to harpoon it or net it and bring it back, um, and the, but then really, uh, without them realizing it, she kind of turns like a god or like a, a savior. She kind of turns the women in town uh, to her side, and I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not sure how to thread this needle without spoiling too much. <laughs> but um, yeah, the the idea of calling out a lure maid. Um, Full credit goes to Alex uh, Woodrow for coming up with that term. I I had originally had some other kind of screwball term that wasn't really working, and she came up with that. Um, and it actually works very well because it, it it implies the aspect of that it is alluring or tempting in some way. But uh, she ends up being luring in an unexpected way, hopefully. Yeah, and it it, it throws the misogyny of this environment into stark relief because I've kind of held off talking about this for now because the, the, the real meat of the of the book, I right. think, is this, you know, endemic misogyny 
in this village. There's the stuff with religion, which is interesting, but gender and sex relationships are where the real horror is. Um, and I found it really interesting that when that is subverted, the male response is immediately to attack the creature. And, and not to get too Freudian, but there are lots of very phallic scenes of harpoons being thrust <laughs> at this mermaid by big burly yeah. men. Um, yeah. And there's quite a telling moment late on um, when one especially butch character says that, and the quote is, we have let this thing unman us for too long. And it seems an interesting choice of words for me because considering that the village is starving and that the main impact she's had is quite literally to starve them, the thing they're most frightened about is still losing the kind of male potency and power. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I can't... Uh... Nothing in this village or in the attitudes in, of the men or the rigid gender structure in this, in this in this village is really that fantastical. A lot of mm-hmm. it's stuff that's we kind of see every day or we see worsening. Um, if you if we look at what's going down in the states, um, and the question of like what happens to men who can't do what they're supposed to be doing they often just become really destructive um, first, you know, towards, towards anything weaker than themselves or uh, to punch down on things or to each other. And again, in, in terms of the, the impact of the mermaid on this village, she kind of brings out the worst in them. Uh, whereas her allure to the, the women in town is kind of the opposite. She kind of brings out something new in them, uh, allows them to sort of step up and rebel a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite sure if that answers your question, but... No, it doesn't answer my question. It's just, I, I think it's interesting that, that... I'm thinking on my feet now about mermaids because, as you said before, you know, our cultural moment, we generally think of them as cute princesses, of figures of beauty. Yeah. Largely, let's face it, it's because of Ariel, you know what I mean, and the little mermaid. Yeah, sure. that we're all conditioned. Going back in time... The mermaid stroke siren stroke any kind of sea dwelling temptress, sea witches, etc. Were always monstrous. You know they were genuinely frightening, threatening creatures because of the things we're talking about. You know they unmanned men, they <laughs> overpowered the masculine, etc. And then yeah. you had this weird moment in time of about forty years where we had Ariel dominating the airwaves, and now it feels like we're we're kind of re appropriating the mermaid as a monster again and i wonder if that is to do with gender politics i wonder if men I, are once I, I again wielding the mermaid yeah i i can't see how uh i can't how see it's not related to that um you know i don't think it's any accident that we're seeing a lot of uh mermaid horror books coming mm. out now and, and coming out uh, in the future as well. Cause I think there's more on the way. Um, for me, it, it is, it is all tied together because the sort of rigid gender norms that a lot of people in our society want to enforce and clamp down on um, that explains the whole appeal of wanting to turn the mermaid back into a monster uh, as well as maybe just being sick of like, having this pretty mermaid princess thing kind of shoved at us. Mm-hmm. Um, Although maybe more, maybe more promisingly, it was that actually the mermaid was a monster once. And then, then she was kind of neutral, positive, a kind of, you know, yeah. a, 
an innocent princess. And maybe now she's becoming a monster, but maybe she's becoming a progressive monster. Maybe the, rather than being the, the monstrous feminine, she's more um, being claimed by writers like yourself, you know, with a progressive mindset as a, as a emblem of emancipation or something. Maybe it's a more positive progression rather than a regression to the, the monstrous mermaid. Yeah, true. That's uh, that's a good point. Uh, or uh, maybe even further, it's, it's not. It's neither a question of being monstrous or um, good or something. It's it's something beyond that. Um, mm. I don't know. Our world is always so black and white, right? Like good, bad, male, female. Like maybe this is something that's just gray. Like the, like the way things really are. Yeah, but uh, I mean, the, the weirdest question is, I suppose, like really, is why on earth? Have we sexualized a half woman, half fish for all these years? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's it's what's his face's uh, fault. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen, you know the guy who wrote the original Little Mermaid story. Yeah. I don't know. So let's blame it on, blame it on him. He's blame it on the Danes. I don't think I've got many Danish listeners. I think it's a fairly safe place to, to place the <laughs> blame. Yeah, let's take down let's take down the Danish national icon. We can do that. But I think, you know, there's that famous statue of the Little Mermaid in uh-huh. the harbor in Copenhagen or whatever. Mm-hmm. Hasn't that been attacked a number of times? Like it's been beheaded or an arm's been sawed off? I'm really, I don't like, know. For a long time seeing, it was just something in the news, not a very big news story, but like once again, someone has lopped her head off. And like, I don't, as far as I know, that thing's bronze or something. I don't know how you just cut the head off a metal statue, but uh, I know it's, it's been attacked a number of times over the years. So I'm now going to write a story about the fact that that thing is coming to life and must be punished. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know about that. I, I believe if you touch it, it means you'll return to Copenhagen, but every European city <laughs> seems to have a thing that if you touch it, you return there. So maybe it's the little peeing boy. Cause they have that as well in Copenhagen. I think I could be mixing up my European capitals. Now. I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's Brussels. That little, the little, the pissing prince or whatever. Is it's it? Called. Right. Yeah. yeah. But if you touch him, you're supposed to go back. It's very strange. We'll, we'll finish with this in a second. But what, one thing I just want to commend you on is subverting my expectations. Because in, in the early on in this book, Casper, our protagonist, who is a... Am I right in thinking he's supposed to be a right little shit? We're not really supposed to root for him, are we? Um, You know, it's... No, you're, you're, you're supposed to root for him. He is the protagonist. Uh. Uh, so yeah, you are supposed to root for him. Whether or not he's a good person is really up for debate. Okay, um, I, and I did set him up to be. Um, he's someone you can root for because he's in love with somebody that he can't be with, and that's almost uh, undeniably uh, a, a way to get get a reader to empathize or root for your character. That unrequited love thing, or lovers with an obstacle, but whether or not he's a good good person uh yeah i don't know because he does some pretty dastardly things by the end maybe we have to diverge our opinions there a little bit because i i find him quite sociopathic all the way through um, <laughs> <Did> you... <laughs> if that's if that offends you tim i um no 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 i, th- I find it hilarious in no way less than my job at the book but yeah i did find him a right little shit um but what <laughs> what what I found really interesting was the fact that you, you didn't take the story where I thought it was going to go because I thought it was going to be a case of like man meets fish very much in the style of how I met your dragon. I thought it would be Casper and Lure taking down the town together because they 
they have a slight a slightly different relationship than she has with every other man in the village um and you right. totally subverted that you went you totally again no pun blew that out of the water um was that was that ever a possible route for the story no i never saw them i sort of getting together but i i think that would have been the again just I, reeling from the impact of like the little mermaid and Ariel and stuff. It's completely natural to think that this, the two of them might end up as some kind of pairing, Mm -hmm. uh, which is often what any bloody mermaid story involves. The mermaid shows up, falls in love and she has to give up her, give up something in order to be with him, blah, 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 and earn a soul. God, whatever. But I think the natural inclination is to think of them either if not becoming romantically involved, somehow becoming friends or being on the same side. Um, but I, I kind of knew going out that that would not happen. This was going to end terribly for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, it really does. It, yeah. It, it, some people will read this and think it's a happy ending, I think, but that, that is a stretch. Um, let's... Let's leave Lua there because, it, you know, it's a slim work and it has got a sure. vicious end. Um, right. I don't want to sap all the mystery out of it. If you don't mind, I'd like to turn to What's in the Ice Cream, which is the book that we originally slated for you to come in and talk about, but then sure. things intervened. It was supposed to come out in April, but then the publisher, Silver Shamrock, ceased to be. And lots of listeners will know about that. But then again, there are other listeners who listen to this quite casually and they aren't immersed in the online indie horror world. Could you talk us through what happened there? I know it's a tricky subject to navigate. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Wasp and the Ice Cream was supposed to come out the end of April. And somewhere around the beginning of that month... uh, the publisher had put up uh, news of, 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 a, of a new release, the cover reveal and the black, the back cover copy. Uh, and people started raising a stink because the back cover copy sounded a bit, it had like, like sort of racist dog whistle terms to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was some kind of apocalyptic story where a virus wipes out all the white people and only the black people survive. But there was something with the wording of it uh that was really problematic and the author was having some kind of fit in the moments on facebook about the criticism he was getting and so anyway it turned into this sort of twitter scrum and the publisher wasn't saying anything and i was kind of watching in horror going would you respond and say something about this like because it was you know i was trying to figure out what was going on um, anyway, there was no response from the publisher and then they suddenly just sort of shut down. Um, but before that happened, I had seen a couple other authors who were scheduled to have books come out with them, uh, publicly say, I've asked for my rights back. I no longer want to be part of this publisher. And as soon as I saw the first one, I cut my heart kind of sank, like, this is going to turn out terrible. So I, I did the same thing. Like, this is clearly a shit show and even though my book's supposed to come out in three weeks, I don't want it to come out like this. Um, and then the publisher just vanished. Like their website shut down, their Twitter feed shut down. Uh, the guy who was the editor, Kenneth Kane, uh, started working as a mediator between the authors and the publisher. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and kudos to him. He was, he did a hell of a lot of job trying to put out fires and, and um, just mediate this shit show. Everything was kind of left in his lap. Um, so then I was, I was kind of back to square one. I, uh, the book didn't obviously didn't come out and I was left shopping around. At first I was left, let's just kind of reeling what was going on, what, what happened. Cause it all happened over a weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so publicly and so ugly, Ugh. so yeah that's where that's what happened and i'm i'm still kind of talking to different a couple of different publishers about about the book i haven't found a home for it so well i mean i can't imagine that was a fun few days it, 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 no. it, it must have been particularly tough to be so close to publication and have to shelve the book it was there was like there would already there was a library review journal uh a library journal review uh that was kind of a big deal to me anyway because uh the library journal suggests books for libraries to buy. Uh, and there was other reviews that started to come in. Like there was, you know, a bit of a buzz building and a very, the response was great. Um, mm-hmm. And then to have it all just kind of go right down the toilet was a bit of a thing to behold. Um, yeah. But now it's just a funny story that I get to tell. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm sure I get that. But at the same time, I think what made it a bit sadder than it could have been is that the book is so good because uh, I'd read it. And I think I finished the, the day this all happens. I was like, oh, fuck, you know, really? um, yeah, I because I was due to speak to you and I, I always read quite in advance. So I make sure that I'm on top of things. So I, I had my arc and I read it and, and loved it. And I was looking at the reviews because I was writing questions for the our conversation you know and I, I was i was looking at reviews and I, I remember thinking this book has got so much buzz already and I, I know that off the back of heart strange and dreadful you're an author it, it very much feels like you're on the cusp of something you know um oh, thanks so when that happened i was like oh that that book needs to be needs to be read um i mean just to do my bit here it's a really kind of warm-hearted, nostalgic, coming-of-age story, and everyone knows that I love those. Um, right. And it, it's basically, in the briefest terms, about three young boys who are insanely bored during one long summer. Um, and, and what happens when one of them falls in love with a girl who may or may not be a witch? Does, does that do it justice? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's perfect, actually. And it, it just... As, as much as that's very much my exact wheelhouse, it also subverts like loads of things about American coming of age fiction. It it's kind of like anti Bradbury or um, a sort of witchy virgin suicides, um, right? Or as I thought at the time, unhappy days. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I like that one. Um, but talk to me a little bit about it, um, Tim, because I, I want people to be poised to read this book when it finally does get released, because I'm convinced it will. Right. Uh, well, uh, first of all, thanks for the kind words. I, I was really happy that you liked the um, Wasp and the Ice Cream is basically a coming-of-age story where, uh, as you had mentioned, um, some young boys simply have too much time on their hands, uh, and they pull a cruel prank on these three sisters who are considered sort of the, the town weirdos. Uh, the main character, Mark, uh, he kind of regrets his action because he realized he was just kind of pulled in, uh, just going along with the crowd. 
it looks like somebody ends up being hurt. So he tries to make amends. He gets to know these uh, three weird sisters um, and ends up falling for the middle sister. Uh, but he's walking a tight line because he has to keep it secret from his friends, uh, but also dealing with this strange family of hers who are potentially kind of dangerous. Um, and so it's it's about small town bigotry and biases and coming of age and seeing, realizing that a lot of the stuff that you were kind of raised with is BS or uh, seeing sort of the ugly side with being passed on to you mm-hmm. as, as a young man. Yeah, that's basically it. And look, a, a coming of age story almost always implies sort of a romantic tale and a heartbreak. Uh, and that's what happens here. So. Yes, it, it does. And, and that relationship is wonderful because there's, there's a whole kind of witchy element to it with these witch bottles and curses and stuff like that. And, and, the, and the family are authentically creepy. But I think my... <laughs> My, my favorite aspect of the, of the entire book is how it deals with this thing that I think so much coming of age do, avoids, which is the idea that you can be friends at that age with people you don't fundamentally like. Um, right. And that's something I completely understand because I think back to my, when I was, you know, between 14 and 18 and I didn't, my friends were dicks. You know, I'm sure I was a dick, you know, but, but I think we're all told to believe in this kind of ride or die brotherhood. That's what this fiction yeah, kind of idealizes. Yeah. And and your book is not only not that, but it's about the realization that your friends are not necessarily good for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, c- because there is there is a real like you know if you're going from the age of like twelve to late teens, those are two totally different people. And a lot of mm-hmm. times, at least in my experience, I remember the friends that I had when I was 12, you kind of become different people. And sometimes, you know, like you said, they were dicks or they developed views where you're like, I don't want to hang out with you. Or, um, you end up, you, you try to be loyal to your friend because they've been your friend since you were 12. But what do you do when they like have these really awful notions or they become like kind of violent, mean people? Uh, are you supposed to stick with them? And like, what's what's friendship? What's loyalty? Or, or worse, uh, to put it in more context, uh, a modern context, I've heard people I know say things like, you know, bros before hoes kind of thing, mm. which is an awful thing to, <laughs> thing to think. Um, so yeah, just the whole kind of ugly male bonding thing or ideas of loyalty and friendship. Sometimes it's... It's a toxic thing, and yeah. there, there are aspects of the story that, like, because I'd said it, I'd said it in this in the late '80s, which was kind of my uh, teenage years. Um, I was, of course, mining my own history for to sort of paint this story, and some of the things that kind of I remembered was just shitty, bigoted ideas that were. It was more the way that they were passed down to, to me. Like it was an older guy, like one of my dad's friends or something, telling an off-color remark or saying something really crude, but giving me a sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, be cool. And uh, realizing that that's how it gets passed on. Like no one's mm-hmm. born a bigot or an asshole. You, 
you literally learn it or it's taught or in this case it's taught to you there's an older male who should know better who's saying something shitty uh and nudging a 13 year old saying you know be cool like be cool like this is cool Mm -hmm. that's a terrible fucking lesson to learn so not only are can your friendships at that age become toxic but so can the the people who are supposed to know better the the adults in the room I think that's why it spoke to me so much, um, why I love this book, because it, it was like transposing my childhood to a North American small town, because I had the same friends who were just odious, you know, and don't be wrong, I wasn't some angel, I had I had the views of a 14-year-old boy in the 90s, you know what I mean, it's like, it, yeah, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't super clean in all of this, you know, I've learned as I've got older, but I, I, as I've mentioned on the show before, I grew up, grew up in this tiny piss pot town in the north of England. I'm still only about 14 minutes drive away from it, but it's a different world now. Um, right. But but all of my sort of adult, um, you know, peers, people I work with, exactly the same. Like I used to work in a garage, just like <laughs> killing petrol for people, you know. Right. And literally they were so racist that if people if 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 like an asian family came with petrol and asked for directions they would actively give them misdirections you know it's that that kind of really mentality. Uh, yeah oh, oh yeah, you wouldn't yeah, believe yeah. you wouldn't believe the racism that was prevalent when i grew up um it was like living in the 50s in the 90s you know um yeah. i think my saving grace is that my dad is a very old dad he's, he's like 86 now you know he was 47 when i was born but my dad has worked in the building game all his life, always surrounded by these views. But as he's got older, he's got more progressive. I think if it wasn't for him, yeah, you could totally re- read that book, Watch the Ice Cream, and understand how you would get sucked into that horrible little world and thinking in that way, you know, completely. Yeah, it's, it's a strange thing because it's the person who's doing it is kind of reaffirming their own, their own dumb beliefs but also testing loyalty uh, with the other person, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting that you said that, like, good for your dad for, like, becoming more progressive. Uh, I don't understand why more people don't become that way. Uh, I, like, I look, I'm, I'm fairly old. I'm, like, 54. Uh, so I, what I've seen over the years is people that I did know who are, like, are my age become way more conservative. And I just don't get it because I'm the opposite as well. Like, how can you not get older and, and see the bullshit that you were yeah. told yeah. Or that you were raised with, not just uh, in terms of personal things, but on a bigger, broader spectrum, like the whole world is a shit show based on a lie. Um, yeah. So I don't, it shocks me when I see people like guys of my age become really conservative. Like, and I don't understand, is that just fear or is that just a, are they slipping back into what they always were told? Um, well, I think the, I think the great myth is that you've got more to protect, and therefore you want to become more selfish. But I always just think the flip side of that is, you know, you get to sixty, it's like, are you a billionaire yet? No. Well, clearly it doesn't fucking work then. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 like the the trick with like people who don't want to raise taxes on the rich because they're thinking, well, one yeah. day I'm going to be rich and I don't want my taxes yeah. to rise. It's like, you're never going to be that fucking rich asshole. Like wake up. You're, you're a 65 year old retired auto worker. You're not going to be Elon Musk, yeah. you know, just, uh, yeah, I just think, yeah, I, I don't get it. And, we, and we've gone way off track on the book, but, <laughs> but what's in the ice cream does a great thing of creating that capsule 
of like like you say toxic loyalty is is a great way of putting yeah. it in a small town and i think it is presumably quite universal uh, but on the on the other on a more poetic side of it the last question i'll ask you about this okay. um it also has the most intriguing potentially hopeful and if you'll forgive me infuriating ending i've read in ages was it um, was it infuriating i i i, I, I appreciate you, you saying that but i i, I you did you find it infuriating just because you wanted to know because oh, i want to know okay. i want to know and I, and, I, and I i know you can't tell me and i realize very few people have read the book yet so this yeah. is a question that's entirely selfish and i'll keep it vague is the letter good news i, I can't tell you i don't know um uh, <sighs> Tim, I, I, I don't mean to frustrate you, Neil, um, but it was kind of deliberate because there was nothing I could say. What's what's in the letter? In the letter, there's nothing I could say that would be better than your subjective imagination. Uh, okay, just because I mean, the thing is, I still wonder what's in the letter. I haven't answered it. Um, it could be hopeful. It could be terrible. It could be all kinds of things. The fact that it's not answered is. I, it may be hopeful, but it kind of leaves it with you. Um, and there's nothing I could I could ever write that would be better than the subjective imagination of a reader. Uh, so that's fair enough. But goddamn, it's it's in your hands now. <laughs> okay, right. Well, I'm 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 opting for hope. Good. I'm choosing hope. Good. Um, I tell you what it reminded me of, and this I guarantee this is a comparison you've not been told before, right? Um. It reminded me of the ending of Great Expectations. Really? Big, yeah. So for people who don't know, the, 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 the last line of Great Expectations by Dickens is a very, kind of very, very clever ending. And it was reworked. There are several endings to that to that book. But the one that they've stuck with, for I think, since like the 1860s, um, Pip and Estelle, Estella, rather, this this loving relationship, yeah. they, they come together years later when... The shit's hit the fan, blah, 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 blah. No one's ever described Dickens in that way before. But yeah, when things have gone on. Um, and the, the last line is, I saw no shadow of another parting from her. And at first you think that could mean, oh, they never part. But the other way to think it, think of it is, they're always parted. So you can never part again once uh, you have parted. I see, I see. You know? And it's a very, very famous, very clever, ambiguous ending. And what's in the ice cream reminded me of that, that it, it, it just en- it ends. It, sorry, my H is bloody hell. It ends on, on a hinge, doesn't it? You know you. Right. And, and I'm choosing hope. Good, good. I, I I choose to think of it as being a hopeful ending as well. Um, especially after. I don't. Know, I don't think I planned that from the beginning. It was just there, and I was lucky enough to kind of recognize this is how it should end. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I, like I said, I still wonder about what's in the letter myself. Um, and I, I certainly wasn't uh, vibing Dickens when I was writing that because <laughs> uh, I don't think I read Great Expectations. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, now, now, now I spoil the ending for you. So uh, thanks a lot, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, whilst we're on the topic of other books, can you do the usual and recommend a book for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, there was a book that I read a while ago. It was actually a Sadie Hartman recommendation. It was, uh, it was Christopher Buhlman's Between Two Fires, which is described as a medieval epic of horror. Uh, it's set in like in France in the second year of the plague. So like 
there's just death everywhere. Uh, and it's <laughs> the storyteller, the writer, like someone who clearly knows this time and place um, is a really good storyteller. And then about a quarter of the way through, or maybe even sooner, there's this wrench that is thrown in that had me scratching my head going, what the hell is going on? And then I realized he's infused this wild swoop towards fantasy, uh, dark, horrific, dark fantasy. But it's such a wild left turn that it had me, had my jaw on the floor. Uh, And I was already engaged. Like there was like three main protagonists. There's a disgraced knight, uh, a drunk of a priest or a monk and a orphan girl who's lost everything. And the, the three of them, sort of bonds get, uh, come together and go on this sort of epic quest. Uh, but then to throw in this hard right turn of like pure fantasy, uh, it was, it's just a thrilling ride. Uh, and I can't remember a book that I've admired and enjoyed more in such a long time. So that sounds brilliant. You have really sold that. I, I'm aware of that. I've never read any of Christopher's work. I, I own, is it those across the river? Right. Um, haven't read it, but I'd seen, between two fires and I had, a, I had a sense it was medieval but that sounds fantastic it's it's I'll definitely check that out it's really good my last question you're a long-term listener so you know the drill for this but what truly scares you tim right um you know when i was a kid i was terrified of falling through the ice and floating away <laughs> like <laughs> like i'd said we'd, we grew up on a lake so we would go out on the on the lake when it was frozen and sometimes i don't know if you've ever heard a lake crack like it wasn't a big lake, but when you're out in the middle of it and you hear this deep rumbling crack that goes from shore to shore, you kind of get a little scared. Um, and part of it was, uh, I remember see, it was like one of those Damien, the, the Omen movies. There's a scene where these kids are playing hockey and the, the ice is completely clear. It's like all the snow's been cleared off and you can kind of see through it. One kid goes through the ice and then he's kind of carried away by the current while everyone is like running, trying to chop the ice and get him out. But the current's just taking him and you see him being dragged away. <laughs> so that terrified me as a kid for some reason, the idea of falling through the ice and never being able to find the hole you came out of. Um, but as an adult, and I, I know it's normal to say oh, my oh, my greatest fear is something happening to my kids, which is true. Um, but what I really scares me these days is the future. Uh, and not my future, but a future where my kids are adults. I'm dead. They're adults. And the world has become such a shitty place, but I can't help them. I can't help them navigate the world or give them any advice. That truly terrifies me because given the state of the world, that, like the rise in authoritarianism and the climate crisis and the, just the onslaught of disinformation and magical thinking that's going on, it really scares me the world that they're going to be left to navigate. So how old are your kids? Tim? Uh, 16 and 18. So they're right. So they are going to save the world. This is my, my old to hope again, right? They're going to save the world. That me and you are dumb, man. We're, we're, we're useless. But yeah, we are. I think, you know, I was, I was holding my niece yesterday who is about six months old. Oh, yeah. And I was looking at her and she, she, she's so smart already. And she's already, seems to be trying to talk at six months old. It's a little bit freaky, to be honest. She's a little bit like Stewie from Family Guy. Um, and I, I turned to my brother-in-law and just said, she's going to solve climate change. Like, she's going to fix it all. No right. pressure, um, Jaya, if you hear this in the, in, in, in the future. Um, 
But yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from. But I, I do think I, I, they are the hope, not the fear. I'm inclined to believe you. Uh, it was interesting. We were just talking about Wasp. That's you know uh, coming of age. That's me looking back at my uh, mm-hmm. coming of age or teenage years. Uh, the difference I see in my kids and their friends in that generation is remarkable in terms of how progressive they are. So I think you are dead on the money. Not that it's fair that we should leave this in their lap because we should be doing something right now. But yeah. the change in attitude shocks me. Uh, it gives gives me hope. So Yeah. Well, what a nice way to end it, actually. You know, rather than, rather than fixating on you floating away under a... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like your kids saving the world. Yeah, Listen, go. it's been an absolute pleasure to finally speak to you. Um, I Everyone get lore because it's just a great time. But also, if we've piqued your interest with what's in the ice cream, petition your local publishing house because <laughs> um, I really want it to see the light of day. I really do. Thank you very much. Those are very kind words. Uh, uh, and thank you, have, thanks for having me on the show. Like I said, I, I'm a fan. I really enjoy the conversations you have. So uh, this has been an absolute treat. Amazing. Tim McGregor, thank you for talking scared. Thanks, Neil. Hiya, folks. It's been a rough week, hasn't it? I hope this episode and a bit of whimsical mermaid chat has been at least a momentary balm to the sting of recent events. If you're listening to this weeks, months or years down the line, hi from the future, but... I am, of course, talking about the US Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade. Now, a podcast about horror books is both completely the wrong and entirely the right place to talk about this topic, because it does feel a little like a horror story coming to life, though I am already tired of the lazy references to The Handmaid's Tale. We, we get it, guys. We get it. But better Atwood's classic than the mangling of the Bible that I've seen over the last few days I do think that if two-thirds of SCOTUS, or whatever we're calling that gaggle of haunted Ronald Reagan waxworks, if they just read one other book, just one, maybe they'd realise that there is more to life than their death cult version of Christianity. I'm thinking we could perhaps bombard them with copies of, I don't know, Rosemary's Baby. You know, a book about the evils of old white people forcing a woman to have a child to appease their deity. What do you think? I'm not going to go on about this anymore here because like I said this is supposed to be a break from real world nightmares for you guys and and I'm not in the US and I don't have a uterus so I'll just hush up now however I will be looking for future ways to support the cause in whatever tiny way a show like this can but yeah that's my piece back to Tim and Laura and what's in the ice cream first of all Both books are great. If you enjoyed Angela Slatter's All the Murmuring Bones, or if you like Neil Gaiman's Dark Affair, if you think Daryl Hannah should have eaten Tom Hanks, then you'll love Lure. I'm often a bit nonplussed by horror set in second universes, but the world Tim creates is so concisely immersive that I'd wanted to explore further. And for a book that's as much a fantasy as horror, it's surprisingly unforgiving and nasty. I definitely recommend it as a quick summer read that packs way more punch than its page length would suggest. And I do need Robert Eggers to adapt it as the next part of his unique folk horror cycle. It's, it's better than Northman. What's in the ice cream 
on the other hand, needs to be a thing. And I've said enough about it in the conversation, but trust me, guys, if you like your rich Americana coming-of-age horror, you will love Wasps. If and when a publisher picks it up, and they will, buy a copy. I really want to support Tim in getting Wasps out for the public to read. It's a really lovely book, a weird book, but one that I, I do believe should have a life. One final note on books mentioned, because... I don't do that enough anymore. During our chat, I briefly mentioned Lauren Groff's The Monsters of Templeton. Now, I'm not sure how many of you will have read that, because despite it having monster in the title, it's very much not a horror novel. Though it is one of the prime examples of my other great love, books about small-town American life. Lauren's gone on to write much more introspective literary novels like Fates and Furies, which is great, and the recent Matrix, which I haven't read yet. But Monsters of Templeton is the one that sings, in my opinion. It's about Willie, who returns to her childhood home in upstate New York just as a prehistoric plesiosaur monster is found in a local lake. <laughs> the book is really about Willie exploring the secrets in the town and her own family tree. But the monster works as a wonderful metaphor for those buried secrets, as well as giving a little weird flair to the story. It's one of those books that could be all too dismissively described as chickly, and then half the audience wouldn't read it. But I'm telling you, hardened horror fans, you should check it out. It's a charming as hell. If you have read Monsters of Templeton, or if you've read Lore, or if you're lucky enough to have gotten your hands on what's in the ice cream, get in touch. Even if you just want to indulge in a primal scream about our contemporary misogyny, get in touch. I'll scream back. You can reach me by email on talkingscaredpod at gmail.com and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at talkscaredpod. I'm always lurking just beneath the water, ready to respond. You can support the show massively by signing up as a Patreon. You'll get loads of bonus content. I'm in the middle of planning a deep dive into House of Leaves, for those of you who get your boat floated by such things. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or use the link in the show notes. Oh, and remember, reviews are vital. Please keep those coming, and thank you for those who have. I'm back next week for some laughs and Mothman chat with Northern T. Kingfisher, whose latest book has got Edgar Allan Poe in a headlock. She's a blast as always. But until then, touch the statue, fuck the statute, and just keep swimming. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>